All right, we have a red light indicating we are live. Today we are going to talk about part two uh, here in Abnormal Psychology, Psych 213. We're in chapter nine, and we're going to talk about part two of sexual and gender disorders. So we started talking about it last class. We made it a few slides into the PowerPoint. We're going to make it the rest of the way through in this recording. Um, when we last got together, we generally talked about the human sexual response cycle, and uh, that was based on Masters and Johnson's work. If you recall, um, one of the things that we saw was that Masters and Johnson in 1966, they, they came up with their basic sexual human response cycle for men and women. Uh, again, whether you're um, gay or straight or bi or any kind of uh, orientation, it doesn't matter. All human beings tend to follow the same physiological response cycle. Um, Masters and Johnson's first uh, layout of that was only four stages. Later, a fifth stage was added. So that, that fifth stage was the first one, the desire or repetitive phase, because Masters and Johnson focused, focused more on physiological response than they did on emotional response. So that appetite or desire phase was added later. Then stage two, um, which is the excitement phase, the beginning of the physiological response, if you will. The excitement phase, plateau phase, orgasmic phase, and resolution phase. And also remember as a quick review, there is a period of time right after the orgasmic phase that males are unable to um, physically respond to stimulation, direct physical stimulation, um, and that is called the resolution phase. That only happens in males, and that resolution phase happens at the beginning of the resolution phase, so not to get that confused. Women don't tend to have the same um, limitation. They have the ability to have multiple orgasms, and we do find some variations in that, uh, both on the male and female side. So that was Masters and Johnson. We also talked about some of the myths that were debunked by Masters and Johnson's research. And now what we're going to do is we're going to start talking about the disorders themselves. The first set of disorders are called sexual dysfunctions. Um, and they're based on this idea of performance anxiety. And what does that mean? It means that sometimes people get so focused on achieving the orgasm that they miss out on other things. They actually create the, uh, anxiety within themselves um, at, at, for performing and, uh, or producing an orgasm. So both men and women can become preoccupied with that. And then uh, as a result, many sexual dysfunctions kind of have their origin in this uh, performance anxiety. Individuals sometimes may take on what's called a spectator role in which they are critically observing their own performance rather than unselfishly uh, participating in lovemaking. And so they become so overly focused on um, achieving an orgasm in their partner that they can't enjoy um, the activity themselves or that they worry about that. Um, one of the things that we know is that the uh, Masters and Johnson's observational studies have led to the development of specific therapeutic physical techniques that continue to be used in sex therapy today. So they have very um, long-reaching uh, impact in uh, the treatment of sexual dysfunctions. Um, sexual dysfunctions, again, are going to be the first category that we talk about. There are three sets of categories in the DSM-5, uh, general sets of categories when we talk about psychosexual disorders. 
and that's the kind of overarching umbrella if you want to think about psychosexual disorders. The three kinds are sexual dysfunctions, um, paraphilic disorders, and then gender dysphoria. Um, so first we're going to talk about sexual dysfunctions. They're disturbances of the sexual response cycle um, and can include uh, even painful intercourse or pain before or after intercourse. Um, paraphilic disorders, which we'll talk about after that, uh, involve intense urges, fantasies, or behaviors involving unusual targets of sexual arousal. So things outside of what we would consider the norm being required for sexual arousal. And then the final category we'll talk about today is gender dysphoria. And that's strong or persistent sense of incongruence between one's assigned gender and one's gender identity. Um, we'll talk about um, some more about that when we get to it. But first, let's start with sexual dysfunctions. So in the DSM-5, a sexual dysfunction is a disturbance in a person's sexual response or experience of sexual pleasure. Um, it's a broad range of disorders, um, including um, all stages of the human sexual response cycle. So again, um, maybe you have problem in the orgasmic phase or in the excitement phase or in the plateau phase or resolution phase. Um, the sexual dysfunction requires clinical judgment that the impairment is not a normal variation response. Um, age and experience of the person must be considered. Uh, again, as we get older, our bodies change. Um, and so our responses change. And the same is true for, again, someone with uh, experience. The more experienced we are, hopefully the, the difference we, different, we, different we perform. And then sometimes that's not true. Um, and then the other part that we have to kind of consider is that um, it doesn't have to do with the adequacy of sexual stimulation involved. Um, because, again, if... There should be ample sexual stimulation involved, and if it's, it's there and they still don't respond, that's when it becomes a dysfunction. And the level of subjective distress. So that's really what's required here. Again, clinical judgment. It's not a normal variation. Must consider age and experience of the person, um, the adequacy of the sexual stimulation involved, and the level of subjective distress. So let's go ahead and take a look. Now, we can have some clinical specifiers uh, when we talk about sexual dysfunctions, um, one specifier is lifelong type versus acquired type. Some dysfunctions may be lifelong, occurring since the age of puberty. Others might have developed at some point um, after a period of normal sexual functioning. And the other uh, clinical specifier is generalized type versus situational type. So in other words, uh, what we're talking about is the generalized sexual dysfunction occur in many or all types of circumstances, regardless of sexual stimulation, situation, or partners. Um, other dysfunctions are limited to partner or particular circumstances or to particular partners. So again, we have to kind of clarify, is this more a general problem or more of a specific problem? We also can use the specifier of its severity, and that may include mild, moderate, or severe in terms of severity. And the ratings are based on the degree to which the symptoms cause distress in the person. So that's the big factor there. The DSM-5 um, reorganized uh, the DSM-4's sexual dysfunctions by making the categories 
gender specific when possible and moving away from linking disorders uh, to parts of the sexual response cycle. Even though they are closely tied to the sexual response cycle, they moved away from that. The emphasis is more strongly placed on the degree of distress caused by the symptoms and the diagnosis requires at least six months of problematic behavior. So again, um, this isn't just some temporary or transient problem necessarily or acute. When we talk about six months, that's a quite a long time uh, to be suffering from a sexual dysfunction. Um, to meet the criteria for one of these disorders, symptoms must cause significant distress for the person, be persistent or reoccurrent, and not due to another meta mental disorder like depression, a medical disorder like circulatory problem, or the effect of a substance or medication. Because again, those problems, those dysfunctions are more explained by, um, I hate to say, uh, by other reasons. You know, depression, again, if you're depressed, you're not going to feel like having sexual activity. Um, if you got a medical problem, no matter how much desire you have, it, it may not happen. So again, stuff to think about. So here is our, our sexual dysfunctions according to the DSM-5 criteria. Um, the first one is delayed ejaculation. So these are male. Uh, the, the first, all of these are male. Well, I shouldn't say all these are male, but a couple of these are male. So delayed ejaculation, again, that was a male-based um, kind of dysfunction. Marked by delay or reduction in or an absence of ejaculation. Again, the minimum duration required for any of these is six months. We have erectile disorder, um, marked difficulty in attaining or retaining an erection during sexual activity. In other words, they can't maintain an erection long enough to um, kind of finish. And again, if we're talking about performance anxiety or um, you know trying to produce an orgasm, you can see where the problems and how much distress that can cause um, since many men and women are focused on that end result. Um, female, female orgasmic disorder is the next one we have on our chart, and it's marked delay, reduction in, or absence of orgasm, and that is with enough stimulation to, to uh, normally trigger an orgasm. So again, it's not because of they're not receiving enough stimulation. They're receiving enough stimulation, but they're just not able to orgasm. Female uh, sexual intercourse or arousal disorder, the absence or reduction of sexual interest or sexual arousal. I kind of chuckle when I say that because, um, you know, it used to be thought that, at least in the DSM-5, they didn't, or 4, they didn't really talk about males suffering from that. It seemed like it was more females. Well, now, we do have, if you look down the list here, male hypoactive sexual desire disorder, a persistent or reoccurrent deficiency or absence of sexual desire. Um, so uh, it's a, a very related kind of disorder. We have genitopelvic pain penetration disorder, persistent or reoccurrent vaginal or pelvic pain during sexual activity. Again, that's one of the uh, disorders that involve pain. And then finally, um, on this chart, we have premature ejaculation. Um, and we could say disorder. It doesn't say that in the chart, but we could easily add that. Um, premature ejaculation is persistent or recurrent pattern of ejaculating before the person wishes to um, during sexual activity. So they'd like to last longer, um, but they're unable to do so. Um, deficient sexual desire disorder, the treatment 
is really um, intervention is difficult for low or absence in uh, sexual desire. Um, there's real no f established pharmacological uh, treatments that exist. Um, there is some evidence that testosterone supplementation may increase sexual desire in men and women who have lower than normal levels. Um, high dosages of androgens may improve low sexual interest in females. But again, um, some of this may be caused by psychological issues. We can do some talk therapy, but it's very difficult. Many people don't want to talk about their lack of desire. And there's such a variation in desire that how can we say that this person is necessarily abnormal? Although if it's causing them distress, it's causing their partner distress, that's where we start to enter into the abnormality. Psychotherapy appears to be modestly effective with between 50 uh, to 70% of patients showing improvement, although only half maintain the improvement three years after therapy. So it seems to be an ongoing problem that does return uh, after therapy is done. S uh, deficient sexual arousal uh, disorder uh, treatment. Um, systematic desensitization can be used to reduce anxiety. Again, remember many of these are anxiety-based um, because of that performance, uh, desire to attain performance. Um, sensate focus uh, therapy is a, a treatment developed by Masters and Johnson, which progresses through three stages or phases. The first one is learning how to pleasure. The second one is genital stimulation. And the third one is non-demand intercourse. And again, the goal is not necessarily to attain orgasm, but to, to enjoy the pleasure through the process. So that's one of the things that can be considered. And then um, uh, Viagra, uh, or the generic um, version of it, um, is an oral medication that relaxes the valve in the penis to allow increased blood flow. Um, what we know is the medication plus cognitive behavioral therapy um, in combination does show better results for males. Um, the treatment of females using this medication has been less promising. Again, it seems to be more a male uh, medication, but um, it has been attempted with females, but it doesn't tend to serve the same outcome. Female orgasmic disorder. Women with female orgasmic disorder may experience normal sexual desire and excitement phases, but they also experience a reoccurring absence or delay of orgasm, either in specific sexual circumstances, where again, it might be situational type, or maybe in all sexual activities, which is more a general type. Um, and it must be, uh, again, occur for at least six months. That's one of the things that we, we have to identify, and then causing significant distress or interpersonal problems. So again, you know, Think about, you know, wanting to have that kind of climax, desiring to have that climax, but never being able to kind of attain it. Um, most cases of female orgasmic disorder are lifelong rather than acquired. Um, in situational types, female may, females may be able to reach orgasm um, during solitary masturbation, but not with a partner, which again tends to lend itself towards that performance anxiety or this kind of um, anxiousness of having a partner present, and then, of course, feeling like the pressure is on, so to speak. Uh, inhibited orgasm is a relatively common prom problem among females. About 10 to 41% of females report orgasm difficulty, 
And about 10% of females do not have orgasms during their lifetime. So, you know, that can be, again, um, there's the desire there, but the process doesn't seem to progress to that point. Delayed ejaculation, age is a diagnostic consideration. Um, one of the things that we know is that as males age, they tend to require longer periods of stimulation before reaching an orgasm. That's one of the things that we see. In most cases, um, they appear to be situational, such as an orgasm being inhibited during intercourse, but occurring in masturbation or oral sex. Um, about 10% of males report occasional problems with inhibited ejaculation. Notice it says, however, that less than 1% report problems persi persisting more than six months, um, making delayed ejaculation the least common of male sexual complaints, which, again, it's kind of mixed because you've got delayed ejaculation. That doesn't mean that you're not getting an erection. You are. Um, but you're just lasting an awful long time and then not ejaculating, which um, in some ways may not be a problem that people want to report. Um, so, uh, again, something else to consider. Premature ejaculation is the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, for premature ejaculation, orgasm and ejaculation occur with minimal sexual stimulation. Uh, within approximately one minute of vaginal penetration or before the person wishes it in the case of non-vaginal sexual activities. The pattern must be recurrent and persistent um, and associated with sig significant distress. Uh, most males with a disorder can inhibit orgasm during masturbation longer than with intercourse, so it seems to be tied specific or more specific to intercourse. About 27% of males indicate problems with early ejaculation in a representative national sample. So um, notice that, again, that tends to be quite prevalent, but here's the down part. About 1% to 3% of men would meet uh, the duration requirement. In other words, ejaculation in less than one minute and persistence for at least six months, according to the DSM-5 diagnosis. So while problems with early ejaculation seem to be of a concern, at least in 27%, of males in the national sample, um, those that actually meet the criteria for premature ejaculation is quite small. Orgasm-related disorders, um, when we talk about those, some ca causal factors, um, orgasm difficulties can result from medication. So again, we have to rule that out. In males, prostate inflammation can also result in rapid ejaculation. So again, that's another physiological concern that must be considered. In many cases of orgasmic dysfunction, there is inadequate knowledge of sexual anatomy and therefore inadequate experience in providing sexual stimulation sufficient to produce orgasm. So what does that mean? That means that, again, in, in some cases, you know, maybe um, the person's partner or maybe even themselves are not adequately knowledgeable about sexual anatomy and what... Um, without getting too graphic, what pieces parts need to be stimulated in order to attain an orgasm. And so because of that, that creates a problem with orgasm-related uh, uh, disorders. Some other possible causal factors include emotional conflicts over sexuality, relationship difficulties, 
um, or even fear of pregnancy, especially when not using uh, birth control, condoms, um, or uh, the pill and using maybe more natural methods of birth control, uh, things like um, um, uh, pulling out before orgasm, things like that. Um, one learning perspective of premature ejaculation suggests that young males may learn to masturbate to orgasm quickly in order to avoid detection, and this could shape early ejaculations, and thus that could then affect later ejaculations. Um, there's no empirical evidence that exists in supporting any particular causal theory for orgasmic disorders. So while all these are, are some suggestions of what might be uh, possibly happening, we really don't have one of these causal theories taking more of a, more of a, a, a dominant role um, than in any other. So that's one of the things to kind of consider. Orgasmic-related disorders, um, when we talk about treatment, again, for deficient uh, orgasm, sensate focus um, uh, therapy may be combined with education about sexual anatomy and masturbation training. So the same kind of approaches that we used before. Um, various methods of systematic desensitization um, can be successful in the treatment of orgasmic dysfunctions. Um, we also... Um, can talk about for premature ejaculation, uh, what's called the squeeze technique. Um, that is where um, a man uh, becomes aroused and prior to ejaculation, um, stimulation is stopped and, a, and uh, the penis is squeezed to keep uh, from ejaculating. There is a point, however, just to let you all know that there's a point called... Um, 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 well, I, I can't think of it right now, but it's the point of no return where, again, once you cross that line, um, orgasm or ejaculation, I should say, is going to occur. So there is a fine line. And what it is, it's almost like learning where that line is, um, getting to the point almost to ejaculation and then stopping, holding it for a period of time. And then uh, resuming activity, getting to that point again, right before that period of inevitability, um, and then um, stopping to try to prolong um, or prolong erection and uh, to try to delay ejaculation for a lo as long as possible. We also can use some pharmacological interventions, things like antipsychotic, antidepressant, even some topical um, anesthetics, so um, things that kind of numb the penis a little bit. Those have been used to um, try to uh, delay ejaculation and premature ejaculation. So all possible techniques that could be used. Um, with genitopelvic pain and penetration disorder, um, it involves pain or the fearful anticipation of pain. So almost like an anticipatory kind of uh, fear um, during intercourse or vaginal penetration. In the DSM-5, uh, this disorder replaces two sexual pain disorders that used to be there in DSM-4. Um, so... Um, that's one of the things that we see. Um, the pain may occur during intercourse or persist or persist afterwards. That's one of the things that we know. Um, the pain is not caused by a lack of lubrication, a general medical condition, the effects of a substance, or any other medical disorder. So again, it can't be caused by those things. Um, we used to talk about painful intercourse and then pain that occurred 
before, during, or after intercourse. And again, almost like that anticipatory pain um, is some of the stuff that we see. Um, when we talk about um, some of the stuff that sometimes can happen, there is involuntary contractions of uh, the muscles around the outer vagina in response to attempts to penetrate the vagina, and that is sometimes involved. Um, those involuntary contractions that then may make penetration um, nearly impossible. Um, normal sexual responses are usually not impaired unless penetration is attempted or anticipated. Um, the, that means that they can still have the desire, they can still become aroused, um, may even get to plateau and orgasm as long as penetration is not involved. As soon as penetration becomes involved, then that that can uh, be, uh, you know, um, that doesn't happen. Um, some of the specifiers for this disorder um, do not include generalized versus situational type, as it's assumed that, this is, that the dysfunction occurs in all sexual situations that involve penetration. Um, the course of the disorder is largely unknown as women may not seek treatment until other problems like conception issues start to occur. Um, but genital pain, uh, genital pelvic pain complaints tend to peak in early adulthood and near menopause. So again, those two time periods tend to be, um, key times when, uh, genital pain uh, or penetration disorder issues can come up. Some causal factors could be, again, maybe a history of trauma, maybe a situation where the person was raped or sexually assaulted in the past, um, and now, of course, they want to have um, intercourse with their partner, but the minute that they try to, uh, again, it, it triggers these other kinds of concerns or um, this kind of anticipatory pain um, that maybe was related to the previous trauma. Again, some additional causes may be painful childbirth, um, maybe inadequate lubrication or abrasion by pubic hair. Um, but again, we have to also rule out that it's not inadequate lubrication. Again, if you use a supplemental lubricant, um, does it continue to occur? But that still could be a cause for why it occurred in the first place. Uh, systematic desensitization can be the treatment for this uh, disorder. Uh, it can be used effectively, uh, relaxation, cessate-focused therapy, um, and general counseling are usually part of the psychological approaches to treatment. Um, we can, if it's vaginismus, which is, uh, again, one of the previous disorders that DSM-5 identified, um, that can be treated, and that's, uh, again, painful um, um, vaginal intercourse can be uh, treated by a combination of relaxation training and Kegel exercises um, that have to do with strengthening the muscles in the pelvic area. Um, success rates uh, reported for these interventions range from 83 to 100% in a one-year follow-up. So um, luckily, this is one of the conditions that has a much better um, uh, treatable outcome. Some other sexual dysfunctions that may also be identified in these sexual dysfunction categories are substance uh, medication-induced sexual dysfunction occurs when there's a significant dysfunction in the sexual functioning area uh, that results from intoxication, withdrawal, 
or exposure to a medication or other substances capable of producing the symptoms. So again, maybe um, the person has a substance abuse problem, or maybe they're using other kinds of you know blood pressure medication that may, again, inhibit sexual functioning. Um, even antidepressants can um, have an impact on sexual functioning. Um, other specifiers or other specified sexual dysfunctions, um, that's another category. And it's available as a category to include dysfunctions that don't meet any other disorders criteria. Uh, for example, one of them, one of, one of the uh, categories, sexual aversion disorder, a former DSM-4 um, category, was discontinued due to its rarity, but again, it, it still may be present, sexual aversion disorder, so it would fall in that other specified sexual dysfunctions. So just to let you know, any questions uh, about those? We do have some future considerations in treatment for sexual dysfunctions. Um, there are a variety of clearly effective psychotherapies for sexual dysfunctions. We know that Behavioral and cognitive behavioral approaches to treatment of sexual dysfunctions produce some solid outcomes. Um, however, there's a clear and concerning trend towards the uh, using medications in the sexual dysfunction area, um, the exclusive push to market and prescribe very profitable new medications that provide temporary symptom, uh, symptom relief will indirectly hinder the development and use of effective psychotherapies because, again, Remember those medications, they take away the symptoms, but they're not take away, they're not taking away or identifying the actual causes. And so again, it seems like psychotherapy is the best cause or the best treatment to deal with the causes, I should say. So any uh, questions about sexual dysfunctions or that category? All right. So the next category is paraphilic disorders. Uh, paraphilic disorders are disorders in which the disturbance concerns the focus or target of sexual desire. I like to say that this has to do with the excitement phase, those things that make a person excited or not excited. So the diagnostic uh, criteria uh, describe intense and reoccurrent sexual fantasies, urges, um, or sexual behaviors involving objects. Uh, including children, non-consenting persons, and even the, the uh, possibility of suffering or humiliation. Um, the fantasies or stimuli may be necessary in order to become sexually aroused, um, or their use may be episodic, but it becomes problematic to the person. In other words, it causes distress. Uh, paraphilic disorders involving children or non-consenting persons are also criminal offenses in addition to mental disorders, and those can result in, again, criminal time, criminal charges, and so not only are they problematic in an emotional and physiological sense in terms of psychological functioning, but they're also in terms of one's freedom because they can involve incarceration. So here's our chart taking a look at um, the paraphilic disorders. You can see that there's quite a few of them. There are a total of eight altogether. There are four on this chart, and then we'll flip to the next one. Um, so paraphilic disorders, DSM-5 criteria, that's what we're using here. Again, six months is the requirement, the minimum duration required for diagnosis. Um, the first one is exhibitionistic disorder. We used to call it exhibitionism and then there was a belief that that was kind of identifying, it was uh, kind of labeling a person as that. 
And so what we've done is in DSM-5, they've changed the titles a little bit um, to, like, for example, exhibitionistic disorder, describing a condition rather than a person. Um, The key uh, symptom of exhibitionistic, sorry, the terminology is just a little difficult to get around sometimes, Um, but the uh, key symptoms of this disorder, exposure of genitals to unsuspecting strangers, Uh, again, much more common in males than in females. Um, This is the, you know, the person uh, who, if you want to go with a stereotype, the person with the trench coat who's flashing people in the park. Um, the person in the parked car who might be, you know, uh, masturbating and hoping people will see them um, in the parked car and then, uh, you know, uh, see their genitals. The person who walks in front of their window exposing themselves to the neighbors, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, fetishistic disorder is the next one. Fetishistic disorder, um, again, the key symptom is uh, sexual arousal involving non-living objects. Again, much more common in males. And you might say, well, I know someone who has a, a, a leg fetish or a breast fetish. Those are living objects. Well, if you have a fetishistic disorder, you don't care what's attached to those body parts. So, yeah, you might have a, a breast fetish, but you don't care what's attached to it. If you go to a breast fetish site, and I would advise you not to do that during work time or on a work or school computer, but if you were to go to one of those, you're going to see, um, you know, pictures, for example, of breasts or of legs, if someone has a leg fetish, a foot fetish, um, you'd see, uh, again, pictures of feet and feet and feet and feet, or legs, 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 or breasts, but it, there's no head necessarily attached, there's no, uh, you know, lower extremities necessarily attached, they, they don't care about anything else but the feet or butt the legs, or or butt the breast. And again, I say they don't care, but um, their focus is extreme on those areas. So that's the way to kind of consider this. You'll see that a lot of these paraphilic disorders really are more common in males than females. The next one, probably my one of my favorite, uh, is frauderistic disorder. Um, this is uh, sexual arousal involving the touching of non-consenting persons. So the best describer or descriptor I can give of you or for you is imagine the person that is um, in a crowded subway and you're feeling like they're too close to you personally. Um, they may be rubbing up against you um, in that crowded subway and, and you feel like you've just been violated in some way. Well, you know, if they're a frauderer, if they have frauderistic disorder, um, then they they have probably that's not a roll of quarters in their pocket. They really are glad to see you, um, but again, the the turn on is that I've just involved you in my sexual arousal or my sexual acts, and you're a non-consenting person in that. So I always think of crowded nightclubs, uh, you know, crowded subway trains, any place um, where someone can get into your personal space and you feel like in some ways that they've. They're too close, and again, that seems to be the desire, the turn-on for them. The last one on this slide is probably the most disturbing to many people is the pedophilic disorder. Uh, Again, sexual arousal involving prepubescent children. Um, This tends to be the one that, again, uh, most people are, are, I don't want to say upset about, but it is the most disturbing of all the uh, pedophilic 
or, or the paraphilic disorders that we see. Um, we'll talk more about them in a few minutes. The next one is sexual sadomasochism um, disorder. So sexual masochism disorder um, is sexual arousal involving self-humiliation or self-suffering. Um, so again, um, much more common in males. You might think that this is more common in females, but it's not. Um, so that's one of the things we see. Um, again, sexual masochistic disorder um, is the person who, um, I hate to say it this way, it's not like they, they necessarily want to be humiliated, but I would say that they need to be humiliated in order to attain some sexual arousal. So being humiliated, um, you know, being made to suffer in some ways is what they need in order for them to gain the arousal for sexual satisfaction. Um, along with that, and we'll talk about all these um, over the next couple slides, sexual sadism disorder, uh, sexual arousal involving the humiliation or suffering of others. Again, you can see how this one fits sometimes with sexual masochism disorder. You know, maybe you've heard of you know, uh, dominance and submission, you know, S and M. And that's what we're talking about here. Sadism and, and masochism. Um, the next one, the seventh one on our list is transvestic disorder. Um, this is sexual arousal involving tr cross-dressing. So uh, again, much more common in males like all the rest of these. But I don't want you to misinterpret this. This doesn't mean that someone just cross-dresses. It's not, uh, you know, excuse my terminology, but a drag queen, you know, a male dressing up as a woman, um, you know, because people will do that for various reasons that don't have anything to do with sexual arousal. This means that the person needs to dress as the uh, cross-dress, as the opposite sex, in order to attain sexual arousal. So in other words, the only way that, for example, maybe I can get aroused is if I put on the cheerleading uniform um, and I have to be uh, where the, the, you know, um, uh, non-gender or my non-gender clothing. So one of the things, and again, I need that for sexual arousal. The final one that you see on the list, and then we'll move into more specifics, is voyeuristic disorder. Um, sexual arousal involving secret observations of others who are naked or sexually engaged. Again, um, this is the person who peeps through the window, who puts a hidden camera um, you know, in certain areas of their house to try to catch people uh, disrobing, disrobing before they climb in the shower or, or before going to the bathroom or, uh, again, trying to catch people in sexual acts. Uh, maybe the person who you know, puts a camera in a, a changing room. Um, so that's kind of what we see. And again, that is more common in males and requires six months for duration. So let's go ahead and take a look at these a little further. So exhibitionistic disorder. Um, the defining pattern of this disorder is reoccurrent fantasy urge or behavior exposing one's genitals to an unsuspecting stranger. I just want to be clear on one thing. Um, you might say, well, okay, someone who um, uh, performs in a strip club where they remove their clothing in front of other people, remember, that's not an unsuspecting stranger. So a, a stripper, by definition, is not an exhibitionistic disorder individual. They may, uh, you know, they may even become aroused by exposing themselves to others 
But in that setting, it is an expected behavior. And most of the times they're doing that for other reasons, money, monetary reasons, things like that. Now, if the only way that they could get aroused was by exposing themselves to others in that way, now we start to get into that problematic behavior. Um, these fantasies, urges, or actions are experienced as sexually arousing and persist for over or for a period of over six months. Uh, specifiers can be used to indicate whether the target was a prepubescent child, uh, physically mature individual, or both. Um, additional additional DSM-5 specifiers are in a controlled environment where opportunities or ex uh, to exposure are limited. Um, and in full remission where the person is symptom-free for five or more years. So again, some of other specifiers you may see attached to exhibitionistic disorder. There was an individual I worked with um, when I was doing drug and alcohol work um, who, grew, who lived in a little town. Um, he had multiple issues. One of them was substance abuse. Another one was um, some... Um, uh, intellectual dysfunction issues, and even some mental health concerns, um, some psychotic uh, concerns. And this uh, individual was known to stand um, on his front porch while the school bus went by, um, exposing himself to the neighbors. Of course, that's problematic. That resulted in criminal behavior uh, and criminal charges. Uh, but there were so many issues going on with him, and especially if he was uh, intoxicated at the time, um, that's one of the things we would see. Um, this is probably one of the most common sexual offenses reported to police in the United States. That's so one of the things that we see is most common um, here in the U.S. Um, that's reported to the police. The onset is usually before the age of 18. It may decrease um, in incidence as one ages. Um, the incidence in the population is unknown, um, but it's not likely to be higher than maybe 2 to 4% of the male population. So maybe 2 to 4% of the male population might uh, you know, suffer from this condition. These individuals are frequently introverted and uh, quietly appropriate in ordinary social situations, but then they're very uh, outgoing in exposing their genitals and other such situations. Exhibitionism may be associated with significant impairment. In a study of 25 males with a disorder, over 90% had comorbid condition, including depression, substance abuse, and personality disorders, much like that condition that I just told you about, the young man that I worked with um, that had comorbid conditions. Um, and in his, his case, it was substance abuse, uh, again, intellectual disability, and um, actually some, I believe the diagnosis may have been schizophrenia. Um, fetishistic disorder is the next one. Um, sexual interest uh, becomes focused on non-living objects. Um, in the DSM-5, there are some specifiers that can be added. Um, for example, fetishistic disorder body parts. So again, it may be specific to certain parts of the body. Uh, non-living objects or other. Um, the person experiences recurrent intense sexual, uh, sexually arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors. Um, and these uh, uh, objects are used in a sexual context. So maybe I have uh, a, a leather fetish, so to speak, or a balloon fetish. Um, I need balloons around me or I need to pop them at certain times in order to attain arousal. Um, I need leather, lace. Um, again, it could be all different kinds of um, 
um, non-living objects. Most commonly, the fetish object becomes a required or strongly preferred aspect of sexual functioning. Um, in other words, um, in its absence, what we might see is that um, the person, um, especially male, because again, these are especially male, they tend to be more frequent in male, but in males, if that um, fetish object is not present, then they tend to experience erectile difficulties. So again, maybe I can't get uh, an erection because I don't have that object present. So it really does can become quite disturbing because normal um, things that would make you aroused tend to uh, lose their arousal and then the person becomes more and more focused on these unique, I'll say unique items. Um, the essential feature, let's talk about frauderistic disorder, again, one of my favorites. Um, the essential feature of frauderistic disorder is intense sexual arousal from touching or rubbing against non-consenting persons, which persists for at least six months. The diagnosis can be made either if the individual has committed the act or if the urges and fantasies cause distress or impairment. Um, and again, it can be we can use this specifier in a controlled environment or in full remission um, that again, we might have seen maybe this person doesn't rub against people, you know, in open areas, but, you know, get me to a confined space. And that tends to be an elevator or something like that. That tends to be more um, when it may occur. Frauderistic disorder usually begins in adolescence, peaks around ages 20 or 15 to 25 before becoming less frequent as uh, people get older. Frauderistic acts can be things from inappropriate touching occur in almost a third of the male population, but the incidence of the disorder is presumed or assumed to be much lower than that, perhaps below 10%. So, you know, inappropriate touching, about a third of the, of the uh, male population may do that, but again, when we talk about actually having the disorder, that's in less than 10%. You know, and I, I have to share this with you. I've, I've always been perplexed um, and maybe I'm, I'm just different, but I've always gone to, uh, you know, dances and you, you go to a dance club, especially it seems to be more and more true today. And I wonder how bold people are, um, you know, touching, rubbing. Um, do people know the person that they're rubbing against or touching? Again, um, in a nightclub, a person may uh, get away with more behaviors that they would than they would normally. And some of that may be because of alcohol or whatever, but... Um, Again, those are the frauderistic acts we're talking about um, when we start to get into the violation. And again, I, I might say that frauderistic acts could result also in, um, again, criminal behavior. Because, um, you know, if someone has been inappropriately touched and a criminal uh, charge is filed, um, this could result in, in, in criminal charges. Pedophilic disorder involves intense sexual arousal to prepubescent children, which persists for at least six months. Um, what we see is the person must be at least the age of 16 and must be five or more years older than the child. The child is generally 13 or younger, and that's, again, one of the concerns we see um, because our, they're not um, old enough to make their own decisions. They really are they're a minor, and so... Again, the adult role is to protect minors, not to take advantage of them, and that's what's happening here. The diagnosis requires the person has either acted on the urges or is distressed or impaired by the urges or fantasies. Um, 
the disorder can be subtyped as exclusive um, in, in which cases um, where sexual attraction might be limited only to children or maybe only to a specific um, you know, age range of children. So in other words, um, my sexual attraction, I'm only attracted to these young children in this age range. Again, that's exclusive. Or it might be non-exclusive, where the person has um, uh, sexual attraction um, to adults as well as to children. So again, um, it really depends on whether adults are involved, then we would say non-exclusive. Uh, because they seem to have a sexual attraction to both um, children and and adults. Uh, pedophilia can also be subtyped as limited to incest or by victim category. So sexually attracted to males, sexually attracted to females, sexually attracted to both, uh, limited incest. Again, these are some specifiers that we can kind of add to this disorder. Um, the diagnosis of pedophilic disorder is complicated by the fact that the behavior is criminal and mandatory reporting laws require um, notification of legal authorities. Um, there, it says here with few exceptions, uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure what those exceptions would be. Um, so um, I, I guess if you were a doctor and this was a patient and you were doing a routine examination, again, uh, you know, a, a necessary examination. That's a much different situation. But again, uh, an adult touching a child or a pubescent child, um, the reason why that's problematic is because now the person's involved with the criminal justice system. And I'll just give you an example of how that can be problematic. Um, when I worked in the state prison, um, one of the things that would happen is we would have uh, inmates come in. They've been uh, charged with a pedophilic crime. Um, in other words, they uh, were touching a, a, a child or they were had inappropriate behaviors with the child or sexual intercourse with the child. They claim that they're innocent. They continue to claim their innocence even after being convicted while they're in jail. Well, here's the catch-22. If a person is saying they're innocent and they're not doing the behaviors, then they don't need treatment for it. The only way you need treatment for something is if you agree that you did it. In fact, one of the requirements um, for the treatment program for sexual offenders is that you admit to your criminal behavior that you admit to the crime. Well, if someone's appealing their charges, they're not going to admit to the crime and to receive treatment. And yet at the same time, they're not going to receive treatment unless they admit to the crime. Um, so there was one gentleman that I remember working with. He was coming up for parole. He had been charged with a 10 to 20 year sentence for um, uh, sexual uh, offending uh, involving a child. He claimed that he didn't do it, came up for parole. The parole board, of course, said that they were not going to let him go because he hadn't received treatment. Well, he was claiming his innocence, so there's no way he could be in the treatment program. You can't be in a treatment program if you're innocent. There's no need for treatment then. So he was kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place and I'll be honest with you, probably more than likely, he was going to end up spending all 20 years in jail um, because he's claiming his innocence um, and therefore not receiving treatment. But without treatment, the parole board wasn't going to let him go to the streets. So, uh, again, it can be very problematic. Um, the course of pedophilic disorder tends to be more chronic and the relapse rate appears to be higher in those who are attracted to males. So it's one of the things that we tend to see. 
Um, male uh, sex offenders tend to have a lower IQ than non-offenders. Uh, among sex offenders um, who uh, uh, sexually abuse children, they tend to have a lower scores than offenders of adults. So that's one of the things we see when we take a look at, at IQ scores. Those that have uh, sexual offenses against children tend to be the lowest, um, lower than sexual offenders against males and non-sexual offenders. And um, we're looking at a chart on the PowerPoint here. Um, you can kind of see that. Um, that lowered kind of IQ. So average IQ, if you were to take a look at uh, non-sexual offenders, falls right in about the, uh, we'll say 99 uh, IQ of about a, a score of 99 um, IQ score. Um, if we take a look at non-offenders, right, um, their IQ scores are up above maybe 102, 103 on average. Um when we take a look at um, sexual offenders, um, victims' ages, mixed or, or unknown, um, we can see, again, a much lower uh, kind of score. In fact, um, when we can put all the uh, sex offenders together, um, their average IQ is looks to be about a, a good seven points, eight points lower than non-offenders. And then when we take a look at, again, you can see how the chart is. So the numbers um, appearing at the bottom of each bar represent the number of samples making up each group. The five groups represent um, 3,187 sexual offenders against children, uh, 302 sexual offenders against adults, 16,222 non-sexual offenders, 432 non-offenders, and then 200 and, or 2,158 sexual offenders with victims' age groups unknown. So even when we take a look and we don't know what the ages are or they're mixed or unknown, we can see this much lower score. So it's one of the things that we see. Um, the incidence of pedophilic disorder is estimated about 3 to 5% of the male population with the female incidence at only a fraction of that, but there are females who do uh, tend to show signs of pedophilic disorder, so uh, don't think that this is only a male disorder. The actual incidence of pedophilia in the population is not known. Um, it says, for reasons um, not, not clear, substantiated cases of child abuse appear to have declined by over 50% since 1990. So we don't know why that has happened, why has there been a decline in child abuse um, of, since 1950 or since 1990 uh, of over 50%? Is it that, again, uh, maybe people are, are, are not reporting, maybe they're not doing it as much? I, I, I don't know, but, but we still don't know the data on that. Next one is sexual masochistic disorder. Sorry, this is so long, but again, it's, I'm just trying to wrap up this material. Um, sexual masochistic disorder, a person with sexual masochistic disorder or masochism disorder uh, obtains intense sexual pleasure or arousal through fantasies, urges, or behaviors involving the act of being bound, beaten, humiliated, or otherwise forced to suffer in some way. Masochistic fantasies must have persisted uh, for six months. They may cause distress or interpersonal problems to qualify for the disorder. Again, this is the person is willing... Um, and I say willing, and I hate to say it that way, but they, but it's true. They're they're willing to be humiliated for sexual arousal. Um, 
again, they may be into bondage, bondage that's painful. Um, the bondage may be extreme. We could talk about branding, piercing, um, alterations, uh, you know, physical alterations. Um, we could talk about being made to uh, suffer in front of other people, humiliated um, in front of other people. Um, and that's what's needed. Um, there was a Nip Tuck episode. Um, Nip Tuck was a uh, TV show here in the United States um, about two plastic surgeons. One was kind of a womanizer and the other one always had drama. He, he was uh, divorced or going through a divorce. Anyway, they were in the same practice together. The womanizer uh, got involved with a woman. Um, he had, he had, uh, was supposed to be married. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of the episode. It was an episode, I believe, in the third season of Nip Tuck. Um, the uh, womanizer was supposed to uh, marry, uh, I don't know, I, I want to say a, a bisexual stripper. I'm not sure what it was. It was kind of a weird episode. Anyway, um, he was left at the altar, so he didn't get married. Um, so as a result, of course, he, he disliked women after that. A woman comes into his office. She says, you know, I, I'm, I feel like I'm ugly. I want to be attractive. Um, will you do some plastic surgery? He looks at her and he basically says, I'm not God, but whatever. I'll do the surgery, okay? Um, during the episode, they, they kind of show the surgery or at least, you know, the operating room. And the nurse comments on how rough he's been during the surgery and that the woman's going to have a pretty... Uh, painful uh, recovery. Uh, comes time to take off the bandages, and the woman looks in the mirror and says, I'm beautiful. Thank you very much. I can't believe you did that. And he says, you know, she goes, I, I, I know that, you, you know, you were, were supposed to be married. I know I'll never get the quality of man that you are, but hopefully someday, you know, I'll find someone to love me. And uh, again, I'm paraphrasing. He says, why don't you be at my apartment tonight at like 830? So she's like, oh my goodness, the doctor wants to go out with me. I must really be beautiful. She gets all you know, dressed up, shows up at his apartment. He's drinking a glass of wine. Um, he says, there's something in the bedroom. I want you to put it on. And he just, she just received all this plastic surgery on her face and everything. She walks in and on the bed is a, plastic, is a paper bag. So she puts the paper bag on her head. Um, he has sex with her. Then he tells her to basically get out. Um, the episode ends with her um, coming to his office, um, and she walks in to his office. He won't turn around and look at her. Um, and so, you know, she puts, she's standing there in front of him, and she says to him, you know, I don't expect you to turn around and look at me. I, I can't believe I did that. I, 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 but that was the best sex I ever had. And so, you know, in a sad face, in a sad you know, way, she, she says, if you ever want to do it again, you know, here's my number. And she lays down a, a paper bag on his desk with her number written on it. She's not happy at being humiliated. She's not happy that, that it took her being completely humiliated um, to be aroused. But that's the condition. And that's where, again, masochism takes on that abnormal role. Um, so don't think that, wow, you're, you're in a, you know, you have in your repertoire of fun activities, you know, you want to do master slave weekend with your significant other or bondage and submission. That doesn't mean that you are a masochist necessarily or have masochistic disorder. What it means is that 
again, it's, it's one of the many things you do. This would be almost a requirement for them to attain sexual arousal. So one of the things to keep in mind, the course tends to be chronic. The activities remain relatively mild, but they may increase in intensity and dangerousness as the person goes on. Um, the specifiers include in a controlled environment or uh, in full remission again. Um, there are bondage clubs people can go to to be humiliated or dominated in front of others who are witnessing, observing, or watching them in these kind of uh, acts. Um, one type of masochistic act, which is hypoxphiliation or exphilia, hypoxphilia, um, involves oxygen deprivating activities such as choking, hanging, or suffocating during sex. And again, you can see how. Um, that could go uh, drastically wrong and place the person um, could result in, in again, death. Um, so these can push the envelope of uh, safety uh, many ways over. Um, sexual masochism disorder, uh, the prevalence rates are about 2% of males. About 1% of females have been re reported in Australia, but the U.S. incidence of the disorder is unknown. Masochists are more uh, common among higher socioeconomic levels, and many are highly educated and successful, successful at work. So uh, I'll give you another example. Um, one of the case studies that uh, is one of, the, one of the textbooks that I read um, in the past was a case of a man who was, again, a high official. Um, sometimes they're government officials. Sometimes they're business leaders or owners. Um, CEOs, sometimes they could be lawyers, people in powerful positions, even professors. I'm not one of them, but I just want to throw that in there in case you were kind of curious. Um, but um, in the one case study that I read about, uh, a man um, described about uh, having a dominatrix, um, uh, an inter interaction with a dominatrix. Uh, uh, that was a, a woman who was um, dressed him up uh, as a woman, uh, placed an item in his rectum, um, strapped it in, um, and then dropped him off at one end of a crowded mall and told him to be at the other end of the mall in 10 minutes or she was going to leave without him. And she had driven him to a location that was hours away from his uh, home, his, his normal uh, you know, area. Um, so he had to walk through the mall dressed as a woman um, with an item you know, in his, in his uh, rectum um, and he talked in the case study about the fact that by the time he got to the to the other end of the mall, he had already orgasmed on himself um, in his um, in his panties because he was forced to to wear panties and the whole deal. So again, um, I'm not going to say that people are happy about this, but don't you have to kind of for a moment don't don't go with um, thinking that people. Um, or this only happens to those in lower socioeconomic levels. These may be very powerful people in uh, a public eye, and then uh, privately they are very uh, place themselves in very submissive, uh, humiliated roles. Um, sexual sadist or sadism disorder um, is the other side of that coin. Sexual sadism disorder involves intense sexual arousal and fantasies causing. Um, the physical or psychological suffering of others. So these are people who, um, the, the dominatrix, if the, she got aroused by dominating this man in the case study they just told you, if that's what it took for her to become aroused, 
then um, that may be a, an indication that she has a, a, a sadism disorder. Um, these urges or acts produce intense sexual arousal for the sadist. Um, they have persisted um, for at least six months. And again, we try not to say sadist, that is a person. We try to talk about the the um, the disorder as, as a being a, a part of the person, not the defining characteristic of the person. Um, to receive the diagnosis, the person either has committed the act on a non-consenting person or is it distressed or impaired by the urges? And again, um, the course tends to be chronic, much like what you saw with masochism disorder. Um, the activities remain relatively mild, but may increase in intensity and dangerousness. And when severe, they especially involve those with an antisocial personality disorder. Victims may be seriously injured or even killed. So this may turn into someone who, again, may be a serial sadistic um, individual um, breaking the law, um, maiming or harming people um, in multiple ways. Um, there was a movie uh, by Dee Snyder. Um, he is the lead singer of Twisted Sister, uh, 80s rock band. Um, Dee Snyder uh, wrote, directed, and starred in a film called um, Strangeland. And in that film, he kidnaps and tortures individuals for his own sadistic desires. So again, that might be an indication. I caution you if you go to look for that film. Um, it is a very strong um, R rating. I believe it was rated R, no one under 17 permitted, not even with parental um, presence. Um, and I'm going to say that it was probably right on the verge of becoming an, an X rated film. So extremely strong uh, film. I'm just letting you know, cautioning you. Um, the condition can uh, have the same specifiers as in a controlled environment or in full remission. And the prevalence is unknown, but less than 10% of civilly committed sex offenders carry the diagnose, so, diagnosis. So something to kind of keep in mind. Um, and many times they may end up, again, in uh, jail because of the criminal act for the non-consenting person. The essential feature, and we'll talk about transvestic disorder. Again, essential feature of transvestic disorder is recurrent intense sexual arousal, uh, arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors that involve cross-dressing. The pattern must be persistent for six months and must be associated with distress or social impairment. Individuals with transvestic disorder um, experience sexual arousal by imagining they are females in some way. So again, that's part of the cross-dressing and then part of the arousal. Um, for the dsm 4 diagnosis, the disorder by definition occurred only in heterosexual males, but I would argue how would you how would you know if uh, someone was a heterosexual female um, dressing as the, as the opposite sex? I mean, uh, again, I think that a female dressed as a male, not as um, not as noticeable as a male dressed as a female. Um, now, what's interesting is in the DSM-5, no longer is that a requirement. So it doesn't have to only occur in heterosexual males. It can occur, again, in, in others now. Um, it is distinguished from the cross-dressing that may be involved in gender dysphoria disorder, um, which is not done for purposes of sexual arousal. Again, this all the paraphilic disorders are tied to sexual arousal. It is a rare disorder in males, extremely rare in females, but the actual incidence is unknown. 
and it can be um, with the specifiers with fetishism or with autogenophilia, which is arousal at thinking of oneself as a female. And again, it can have the specifier in a controlled environment or in full remission. Voyeuristic disorder. Voyeuristic disorder, again, I believe this is the last one we'll talk about, and then we'll talk about some other aspects. Um, Individuals with voyeuristic disorder experience intense sexual arousal connected to observing an unsuspecting person who is naked, disrobing, or engaged in sexual activity. The diagnosis requires that the person has either acted on these urges or that the urges cause the person significant distress or impairment, and uh, signs of voyeurism must be present for at least six months. Some more modern things that you might see, again, these are the people that, again, they may walk around and they take their cell phone and they uh, take pictures up underneath uh, a stranger's skirt, or they, um, again, put a hidden camera in, in various places to try to catch someone, in an, in an act of disrobing or involved in sexual activity. Um, there was a movie, I want to say Clint Eastwood was in it, um, where there was a, I, I want to say a political figure, I think it was a senator, um, again, a fictional movie, but um, the uh, person would go and um, had a two-way mirror or a one-way mirror in their um, bedroom they would go and hide in a room where they could observe the bedroom and they would observe while their uh, wife went and got partners and brought the partners in and had sex with them while the husband masturbated in the closed room observing all of the acts. So, of course, um, the wife knew what was going on, but the male did not know that was participating in the acts or, you know, a female uh, did not know who was participating in the acts. So, again, that's the arousal part. I'm observing someone who uh, does not know what's that they're being observed. Typically, the voyeur does not seek sexual contact with the observed person, although um, he or she uh, may harbor a fantasy of such activity. The voyeurism usually begins by age 15. It tends to have a chronic course and, when severe, uh, may be the person's exclusive sexual outlet. Um, The diagnosis, again, can have the specifiers in a controlled environment or in full remission, and the prevalence could be as high as 12% in males and about one-third that for females, so about maybe 4% in females. Um, Some other specified paraphilic disorders that, again, don't have specific um, categories, like the major ones, um, some examples include zoophilia, which is uh, uh, a kind of a a desire to have sexual activity with animals, necrophilia, the uh, desire for sexual activity with corpses or dead people, coprophilia, um, the involvement of feces in in, um, sexual activity, Um, uh, klismophobia or klismophilia, which is, again, someone who gets aroused by the use of enemas in sexual activity. So, Again, you could involve all different kinds of things. There are many other additional forms of paraphilic uh, conditions, all having in common the intense sexual arousal associated with um, unusual sources of attraction. Um, these, If these are reoccurrent and persistent for six months and cause distress or social problems, they may be coded, again, as other specific paraphilic disorders. 
What about the treatment in general? Well, that's this is you know where we were trying to get to. People with paraphilic disorders often don't seek treatment unless mandated by legal authorities and may claim that therapy is not needed. They don't see anything wrong with their behavior. Even though it may be distressing to them, it's arousing at the same time. So it's kind of like that 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 mix, you know, wow, this really turns me on and I achieve orgasm. So, you know, what's wrong with that? I just tend to be different than everybody else. And again, as long as other people are not negatively impacted, maybe they don't even show up to treatment. Um, the lack of motivation for change represents a serious impediment to therapy. And in fact, those in treatment may make deliberate attempts to fool the therapist into believing that the problem has improved when in fact it hasn't or it hasn't changed at all. Recidivism continues to be a serious problem, especially in the treatment of sexual offenders. That's one of the things that we see. Um, some other treatments, pharmacological approaches, the attempt to reduce sexual arousal by giving estrogen-like or progestin like hormones to males, that's one of the things that we can do, especially um, when we talk about um, uh, uh, males in treatment. Um, one kind of treatment that we can give is Depo-Provera, which is a, 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 a birth control method for females, but in males it tends to reduce sexual arousal. So again, if I'm a sex offender that uh, I don't get turned on by, um, for example, uh, you know, pedophilic, pedophilic fantasies. Um, behavioral treatments for paraphilias tend to include masturbatory retraining or aversion techniques. Uh, again, getting the person to either be turned off by their fantasies so that they are no longer arousing or masturbating to more appropriate fantasies um, instead of inappropriate ones. Um, one of the things that happens um, with sexual offenders, I worked with sexual offenders um, when I worked in the prison, um, Sometimes they were fixated. If they were fixated on a certain age range of children, then that became more problematic and more difficult to treat because, again, all of their fantasies as well as their desires centered around that age range of child. When you had uh, sexual offenders that had both um, adult and child fantasies, again, those that um, had more uh, adult interactions as well as children interactions, they're, they were actually a little bit easier to treat because oftentimes what they would do is bring the child up to an adult status, like she was really mature for a 13-year-old. So they have adult-like fantasies, um, and again, what you do is you get them to uh, have um, partner choices that are more appropriate, in other words, not children um, in their choices for um, a sexual outlet. Um, a diverse set of cognitive behavioral procedures involving cognitive restructuring, and in other words, changing your thinking, relapse prevention, and even empathy training, especially um, when we talk about the sadistic kinds of disorders, identification with the victim, have also been employed in individual case studies, and sometimes there's some positive results from those. Uh, paraphilic disorder treatment, um, an, an example of covert sensitization. So there's some charts here you can kind of see on our PowerPoint. Um, and so covert sensitization, what is it? It's imagery of a paraphilic act um, is paired with an anxiety-inducing or nauseating uh, verbal description. And so what you're doing is covertly sensitizing them so that that um, act is no longer arousing. In other words, it, it, it upsets them. 
Um, the percentage of full erection and self-reported arousal obtained in response to exhibitionistic, sadistic, and heterosexual stimuli um, is measured during baseline treatment and follow-up phases for adult males with a history of attempted rape, exhibitionism, or sadistic fantasies. One of the things that you can see is, that, again, you can see that um, with treatment from baseline with exhibitionism, you can see a, a great reduction um, in, um, again, the percentage of full erection or self-reported arousal. Um, we see the same thing with sadism. And so, um, and but what we do see is that with heterosexual kinds of uh, behavior, that remains the same. So when we talk about, again, those things that involve sadism or exhibitionism, they tend to be decreased while heterosexual stimuli seems to remain at, at baseline. Now, that was done in 1978, so that's some old research. Again, um, oftentimes when we talk about um, sad sadistic kinds of behaviors, even exhibitionistic, pedophilic types of dis disorders or, or behaviors, again, oftentimes these folks are ending up in jail, and that's one of the things that we're seeing. The final category, finally, we're to the last one. And the final category here in um, what we call psychosexual disorders um, are actually um, easy. It's, the, it's uh, the final category. This category used to be in DSM-4, uh, TR, and before what we call gender identity disorder. And gender identity disorder, there was this idea that a person was upset with their identity that they wanted to, again, take on the gender of uh, the opposite sex or um, maybe treatment would focus on getting them to be comfortable with their own sex. Um, that category was changed and removed because, uh, again, I think there's a, a realization that people can um, have, for example, a male brain and a female body, that gender maybe isn't as defined as what we think it is. So this category has been changed to what we now call gender dysphoria. So in gender dysphoria, the individual experiences both uh, of the following, a strong and persistent cross-gender identification and persistent discomfort with one's assigned sex or with the gender role associated with it. So you have a dysphoria, sadness, a depression, if you will, about their gender. As a result, the person experiences clinically significant distress or impairment in functioning, and um, the two trajectories are highlighted in the DSM-5, that is early onset gender dysphoria, which starts in childhood and then progresses on, or late onset dysphoria that begins at or after puberty. So you can have one of those two. Um, gender dysphoria in children, what we see is children with gender dysphoria may express the wish to grow the genitals of the other sex. These children may prefer stereotypic play, mannerisms, um, and attire of the other gender. Over time, uh, cross-gender behaviors tend to decline for most children with the disorder. It tends to be more persistent in girls than in boys. Uh, most boys, about two-thirds or more, who do not persist in gender dysphoria identity um, really tend to identify themselves as gay or homosexual. Girls who do not persist in the disorder um, tend to identify themselves as, le as lesbians at a lower rate. So again, it's some of the stuff that we see with children. 
Um, in adolescence and adults with gender dysphoria, there's a frequent expression of a desire to live as or to become the other sex, uh, including interest in sex change surgery or hormonal treatments. That's one of the things that we see. Um, gender dysphoria in adolescents and adults can be specified as post-transition, that is, living as the other gender and preparing for or having had some medical procedure to alter their gender. So, gender. so that's one of the things that we can see. And again, they they may still have dysphoria afterwards. It's one of the things that could be present. Just because they have uh, a gender um, you know, change, uh, just because they have the surgery to do so, does not necessarily mean that that takes away the dysphoria. They may still have a sadness or a, a, a discomfort with their gender in general. Um, gender dysphoria with a disorder of sex development is another disorder that we sometimes see. Um, some biological conditions affect fetal sex characteristic development. In other words, we could have congenital um, adrenal hyperplasia, or what's called CAH. Um, it's also termed as adrenogenital syndrome. It's a genetic uh, female, an XX fetus, that is exposed to high levels of androgen uh, during fetal development and then therefore end up with um, some of the uh, maybe sex characteristics of a, a male or maybe, uh, again, um, uh, brain wiring that is uh, male-like, if we want to talk about it that way. We also have androgen insensitive insensitivity syndrome. A genetic male, an XY fetus, shows general insensitivity during fetal development to the androgens and is born with underdeveloped sexual structures. Um, so again, you might see that. They have this maybe um, not the full genitalia of uh, the male... Um, genetic material that they were supposed that they were identified to have at least genetically and and as a result they they have under underdeveloped sexual structures um, individuals with these or other pseudo hermaphrodilic um, conditions um, who are troubled by cross-dressing um, identity may be given these specifiers again um, this cross-gender, I said cross-dressing, I'm sorry. So let me restate that again. So individuals with these or other pseudo-hermaphrodelic conditions, um, hermaphrodelic conditions are conditions where a person may have, um, appear to have both genitalia, but usually they don't have the complete genitalia. It's, I don't, I don't think it's possible to have the complete genitalia of both uh, because the same structures that are used in uh, male development or same structures used in female development, it just depends on whether uh, testosterone is present prenatally. Um, but um, those that have these kinds of conditions and who are troubled by cross-gender identity um, are oftentimes given these specifiers. Again, gender dysphoria with a disorder of sexual development. Um, the treatment for gender dysphoria, um, sex reassignment surgery, appears to be among the, the only effective treatments for chronic gender dysphoria in adults. It's recommended that the person preparing for sexual reassignment um, first complete 12 months of life as the other gender, in other words, live as the under, other sex, um, and then six months on continuous hormone therapy treatments um, in order to be a candidate for surgery because that again, make sure once the surgery is done, it's not like you can go back. I mean, uh, that's one of the things that, that we see. Um, reviews of outcomes. 
uh, literature, review of outcome literature, reveals that the most that most transsexuals, and that's an old term that we used to use, um, are satisfied with the outcome of sexual reassignment surgery, and that's most. But um, I have seen that in some uh, literature, it says that uh, in forty percent, which is again is a, a minority, but that's still a pretty large minority. In forty percent of the cases, the dysphoria does not go away does not go away with sex reassignment surgery. So again, concerns. I'm sorry that it was kind of rushed there at the end, but I was trying to get done with the recording and get through the whole PowerPoint. So if you have any questions, make sure that you ask me later. And if you're listening at home, thank you very much. I appreciate it.